0: chapter 1, or you can just look at the passages on the insert. For this year's Advent series, I will use one of the great Advent hymns of the church, Joy to the World. Now, I'm not preaching the hymn, but I'm just accenting the biblical themes, and they're major biblical themes that Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, puts into this great hymn, Joy to the World. There are four main themes, one with each verse, and so it works perfectly for these four weeks. Isaac Watts is known as the father of English hymnody. He was a prolific hymn writer. He wrote this particular hymn in 1719, so just about 300 years ago. It started to be sung some years later, around in the 740s, and at that time, the first tunes used came from Handel's Messiah. In fact, you might recognize the first notes of each stanza to be similar to Lift Up Ye Gates from Handel's Messiah. So uh, it was used in this way early on. Some years later, the great hymn arranger Lowell Mason provided the finalized version that we've been singing since 1836, and it has some Handel woven in it as well. It comes from the hymn tune Antioch. If there was a list of the best all time in the field of music composition, the top ten would have to include Watts, Handel, and Mason. So to have a hymn that combines all three is a special thing for sure. We usually think in terms of two Advents, although Advent, the word, simply means arrival or appearance. So you could say there are many, many arrivals of God and His presence among His people throughout the biblical uh, history that we see laid before us in Scripture. But in particular, we usually think of the first Advent of Jesus being at His birth, this time of year that we concentrate on His incarnation. And then his second Advent, or his final Advent, his final coming, is still yet to come. We look forward to that coming. Interestingly, even though we sing joy to the world during the first Advent celebration season right now, the hymn was actually designed to contemplate Christ's final coming. Now, it's fair to say that because of his first coming, everything that God orchestrated to bring about Jesus' coming born of the Virgin, as he did some 2,000 years ago, because he accomplished all that, we are sure of his final coming. And so singing of his final coming assumes what he has done, and we celebrate it once again like this. Now, very interestingly, Isaac Watts, who was also a very accomplished Bible and theology student, he used Psalm 98 to spur on this Advent thought. Psalm 98 is an ascent psalm. It was sung to celebrate the king taking his throne, which in the times of Israel marked God's favor to them and thought of the earthly King David as being just a picture of King Jesus to come and Yahweh himself being their king. It's a celebration of joy that the king owns his earth, that he's visiting his earth, that he's relieved his people. This was written a 1,000 years before Christ came. Psalm 98, that would be the key psalm that Isaac Watts refers to when he writes this hymn. So with that preface in mind, we'll say more about this psalm and this song as time goes on during Advent. Please look at Psalm 98 as I prepare to read. This is God's holy word. Then I'll turn in light of the first stanza of the hymn to John chapter 1 right after. This is God's holy word. O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The first stanza of the hymn says, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. Receive the king. God's word, John chapter 1, verse 6 down to verse 13. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we so love to reflect on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us. Us who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as your children. We know that Jesus has come the first time. Now we look forward to his final appearance, which doesn't mark the end of our lives, but instead it marks a new beginning for our eternal life in him. Let us live now in light of his coming. By the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. So the theme of the first verse of Joy to the World is about receiving the king and preparing room for him. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Now, the hymn should not be taken as an invitation a syrupy invitation to the world to, oh, won't you please give him a space in your heart like that first innkeeper who failed to do so. That's not the sentiment of the hymn. The hymn is, he's coming this time, and the earth will receive him. He will come. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. So it's not a question of whether the earth will receive. It's just an announcement or a pronouncement that the king is coming. Now it gives opportunity here for us to prepare him room, prepare for him And for his coming? That's a good question for us. How will we prepare or are we prepared for his coming? Have we made room for him in a sense? Now, as you think about this, it's very poignant because most here either hosted people at their house for Thanksgiving or they went to someone's house um, who had prepared for their coming, who received them into their home. In the last couple of years, we've had the Really, the privilege of being able to host our family's Thanksgiving at our house. Just the second year, 28 years of marriage, all the other years we would go to Sherry's parents. But this year, just the central location, the convenience of it, we've been having it here. This is the second year to do so. Now we learned some things from the first year. How to host it well, or at least hopefully, hopefully host it well. Consider all of our guests and all their needs that they have. Um, I don't mean just dietary. I mean preferences and traditions that we honor, that we enjoy, that we want to keep intact, especially since we switched which house it would be at. So what activities would we have for the kids? And every person was considered. Weeks before, Sherry and I started discussing what would we have to eat, what meals or what foods do we have to make that are like the way we've done it, because that's what we enjoy to do, enjoy those traditions. Sure, you make some new ones, but you like to capture the old ones. And we're thinking of our parents who have been hosting this for so many years. We want to do honor to them and the way they would do it if it was in their home. And so we're thinking of all our guests and receiving them. And for the first year, we have A.J.'s got his fiancée here. We want to make sure she doesn't think we're completely crazy right away. I mean, give some time to kind of melt into it. But we're thinking of all the people, individually caring about them and how they will feel when they come, how they'll, just how the whole vibe will be, the whole Thanksgiving vibe. And will we have it together and enjoy it and ultimately be in a place where we can just give thanks to God for this fellowship we have as a family, the great gifts he's given us. And we're thinking of our home in every way, the way it's laid out, the comfort, where will people stay, what will they eat, what will we listen to, what activities will we do in the yard, preparing our house, preparing to receive them into our house. It's a special thing, and we want them to feel honored when they're there and everyone have a great time. Now, imagine for a moment with that kind of sentiment. Maybe you had someone at your home like that and you know what I'm saying. Or you go to someone's house and you could tell they've really gone all out to receive you into their home. Now imagine that the king was going to stay with you. The king. Now I'm talking in terms of the way antiquity understands the monarchy. The monarchy appointed by God is the king. And so there's a certain acknowledgement among the people that whoever the king is is by divine appointment at some level. And so it's almost like having an appointed person of God himself come into your house. The king who's sovereign over everything. And what you own actually falls up under his domain if you're in his kingdom. And so now you're told the king is going to come to stay with you. And you're going to receive the king into your home. You're going to prepare room for him in your home. It's going to alter everything in your life to fix on pleasing the king or honoring the king. um, In some sense, to serve the king. And so preparing him room, receiving him, has to do with ordering everything. Not just the room he'll stay in, but the whole of the house. Not just that compartment of your life, but the whole of your life. To receive the king now doesn't just mean that's part of my life. It means the king informs every aspect of our lives. And this is what is at heart, especially for those who are already believers. There's a call to those who are not believers to receive Christ, to trust in Christ. We'll see that. But there's also a call to all of us as Christians who have claimed Christ for some time. Have we really ordered our household to be under King Jesus? Or is it just he's part of it? Would we receive, have we received King Jesus into the whole of our life where he informs everything about our lives? That we see everything we're called to through the lens of his call on our life, his saving call on our life. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, in heaven and nature sing. The first coming of Christ should make us necessarily anxious in a good way for the final coming of Christ. No matter what's happening in this day, whatever era I would preach this sermon or say this truth, that the first coming of Christ should inform and make us anxious for the second. It will color everything else in a proper way in between as we look forward to what is sure, that we will meet him face to face. I think that the use of Psalm 98 is pretty intriguing, that Isaac Watts would use this. And I would say to you first that the truth that is implicit is that Jesus came the first time and he will come again. And Psalm 98 bolsters this. Look at Psalm 98 with me. It's on your outline. The use of this psalm, this psalm is written in the time of David. It's written 1,000 years before Jesus came. It illustrates the assurance that we can have as believers in God's promise to be with us, to deliver us. Again, a thousand years before Jesus, a lot happened in those thousand years that would further prove the point of Psalm 98. But ask yourself, what happened before Psalm 98? If you're King David, what has occurred in the life of God's people already? Well, if Abraham was in 2000 BC and David is in 1000, there's a thousand years of redemption history there. And there's the calling of Abraham. There's the raising up through the patriarchs of the Jewish people. There's um, an incubating them in Egypt where eventually the Pharaoh didn't know them any longer. They became slaves. And then God, through Moses, gives them deliverance. Look at how this psalm celebrates the real presence of God with his people. Again, before Jesus came the first time, this is already said of God in verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. So in David's time, they already knew of his redemption history. He had already done far enough away to prove himself. So the fact that Jesus has come already should make all of us in 2021 be anxious for the truth and the reality and the surety that he's coming again. The people in 1000 BC already saw that and were looking forward to what else he would do. Verse 2 of Psalm 98 The Lord has made known his salvation, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Everybody got to see the deliverance of Israel. How is this so? Well, Egypt is the most powerful nation on the earth at this time. And when Israel is rescued out from them, and then subsequent times where God rescued the Israelites from nations they had no business defeating, that were travel. Yahweh goes with Israel. Yahweh can take down walls at Jericho. Yahweh can take on nations that they should not be able to take on, that no one has has done so before. All sorts of amazing stories of deliverance, and he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Verse 3 of Psalm 98. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So everybody, when they are honest, can look at the history of this world and see God's special hand upon his people throughout time up until even now. And so, Psalm 98 is the basis, the one that Watts uses to call us to sing joy to the world. It's an amazing story of redemption in the people of God. Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. For what? Because of this deliverance, the way he's made his righteousness known. Do you see how Watts uses this now since Christ has come to, to refrain joy to the world? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing. Multiple times the word "joy" is used here again, the basis for the hymn. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre, the sound of the melody. Sing about the great deliverances of God. Praise the king for what he has done. Verse six with trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. We sing for joy because of his deliverance, His special hand shown to his people in be before 1,000 B.C., there was already enough. Since 1,000 B.C., we've got even more. And more, most particularly, that Jesus came, that he died, and that he'll come again. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. So let the earth receive The the idea of the whole of the earth, the creation that was so devastated at the fall. Now King Jesus returns for a final time with full restoration in order. And of course, verse 9 culminates Psalm 98, which was our call to worship. Before the Lord, uh, we are, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now there's a forecasting going on in this verse 9. It's true that the Lord had visited the earth in various judgments, but clearly David, with prophetic voice, is speaking of a future coming. And that coming would begin with Jesus' first advent, but it would not culminate until he comes again. The coming of God to earth. Many micro-visitations or advents, you might say. But now there's a forecast of a final Advent yet to come. And this is what Watts has in mind as he pens joy to the world. For the Lord has come. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. In other words, joy to the world. The Lord has come. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the the nations. Let earth Receive her king. In the light of all this, let everybody make room. Everybody check your room. Everybody check your house. Is it ready for the king? Is the king welcome there? Have we ordered everything according to the king's coming at any moment? Now we turn to John chapter 1. Because here we have the exact language of receiving the king receiving Jesus, which is what the appeal is shaped as in the first stanza of the hymn. Now look at John chapter 1, verse 6, there again on your insert. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist, not to be confused with the author of the gospel of John, He comes as a a bit of an Old Testament throwback prophet who is there to cry as a voice in the wilderness as predicted at the end of the Old Testament to let people know that Messiah is here, the King is coming, the Christ is going to be here. And he bears witness about the light who is Christ. Verse 8 says he was not the light himself but came to bear witness about the light. Now John, like the other gospel writers, gives us an accurate historical account of Jesus' coming verse 9 of chapter 1. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. We should not discount the gospel accounts as historic references to the actual coming of Christ. Jesus actually came, and we know this for many reasons, but chief among those reasons are very, very helpful accounts by four different perspectives, four different authors, not writing at exactly the same time, all in the same although in the same epoch, we have the new testament 's account of jesus 's actual coming that gains no real, no real counter, no real argument against it until only recent times when there 's really desperate efforts to try to discount the whole of Christianity, but for centuries and centuries. The gospel writers were held on the same level as any historian. In fact, it's interesting. If you would study the Caesars, take even Constantine for that matter, the emperor, um, you would find that the, uh, the accounts about him that we take as, as, uh, with veracity and we count them as historic we can trust them, most of them were commissioned by he himself to write about him. I don't know, if I gave a history about myself, it would be a bit of a color, there would be a slant on it, it would be a little different than what you might write. Now, people have offered other perspectives, witnesses after, and we have a pretty good amount to go on to describe Constantine, but no one would really argue about him historically on the basis of that. Yet in the Gospel accounts, Jesus didn't tell John, not at the moment, take this down and write this down. This is the Holy Spirit's work. And then after Jesus ascends into heaven, these four different authors seek to write accurate accounts of Christ. Now, we understand the Holy Spirit's activity in this. But if you're just picking up one of these documents as someone who's not Christian, you would see all the marks of something that's an accurate account that you can trust. Not just one, four of them. Now, beyond just the Bible writers themselves, which would be enough, I realize— but just looking at it as a science, a textual science, history bears truth to the truth about the coming of Christ. Josephus, one of the most important first century politicians, authors, soldiers, historians, he did it all. He was a Jewish man who was trying to um, repel the Roman persecution upon his people, the Jews. Uh, there was lots of uh, attacks coming towards the Jews, and they were trying to disassociate from the Christians. So he was no friend to Christianity. As he wrote the antiquities of the Jews to explain the Jewish people and their beliefs to the Romans, in antiquities, he wrote of the death of James, the apostle, who is the apostle of Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus Christ, the, or Jesus the one who is the Christ, in his antiquities. He shows him as a historic person. He labels James the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. He includes these details so that we have a clear non-Christian attestation to the historicity of Jesus himself. There's another man, a Roman, a Roman uh, historian called Tacitus, who lived around the same time period, right after the time of Jesus, still before 120. Modern historians view his annals of the Roman Empire, especially the story of Nero, to be the best source of information about this period in Roman history. From Tacitus, we know that Nero blamed the devastating fire that happened in Rome in 64 on the Christians, the followers of Christ. Tacitus wrote, Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures, those whom the common people called Christians, Christ followers hated for their abominable crimes. Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the pure creator Pontius Pilate. Tacitus sets Jesus in history, and we know that he came, and we know he will come again. Professor Casey Elledge does a good job of summarizing all the different voices that talk about Jesus in historical reality. He wrote the testimonies of the ancient historians reveal how even those outside the early church regarded Jesus to have been a historical person. It remains difficult, therefore, Professor Ellich says, if not impossible, to deny the historical existence of Jesus when the earliest Christians, Jewish and pagan, evidence mention him. The whole world has followed this timeline that denotes B.C. and A.D., BC stands for before Christ. AD stands for anno domini, Latin for the year of our Lord. We are living in 2021, 2021 years not after Confucius. Not after Muhammad, but after our Lord Jesus Christ. Let the earth receive her king. He came and he will come again. He will come again. The king Is coming to that which he owns. The earth won't have an option to reject the king as they did the first time. The next time will be different. In Psalm 98, the psalm we just looked at, verse 9 hints at this. For he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now he does that on a micro scale, person to person, all the way through. But there's, this is talking about a culmination of things. It's the same thing Paul refers to, for instance, when he writes to the Philippians. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If Jesus actually came, as scripture describes and history, attests, then we do well to pay attention to all the promises that led to that point, and then we do better to listen to all the promises since then that await his final coming. The author of Hebrews said, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all whom have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Finally, I'll just reference the same author that wrote John in an epistle, a shorter letter, First John. He wrote, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I mentioned it earlier, but I'll say it again. One of the most famous uh, biblical acclamations or salutations that used to happen in worship services in the church for over a thousand years the minister would get up and say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Because he's come, we know that he'll come again, and we can believe those promises. The angel looked at the apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven. I mean, they were dumbfounded by all that they had seen and happen in the last couple of years, but especially those 40 days from the time he raised again and then ascended. And there they are standing, staring at the sky. And the angel says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. In other words, go live your life now in light of the fact he's coming back. Prepare him room. How's your room prepared? Now, having said this, please notice, and I know you do know this, despite all of this, many have rejected him. Look at John 1. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So the world in general, at least on an initial level, rejected Christ as he came. But not just the people in the wider population. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So yes, the world in general tended towards rejection, but even the Jewish people who were waiting for the second Adam based on the prophecies of Scripture— who were waiting for the Messiah, the Anointed One, even many of them, if not most of them, rejected him. That's what John records about the reception for Christ. Despite being the creator of the universe and of the earth, he was not received by its inhabitants. Despite coming precisely as the Jewish prophets foretold, his own nation rejected him. Why do you suppose so many people reject Christ with all that has been laid out about him in Scripture? I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think this is true. First, some people just don't think they need a savior. That could be you. I'm generally a good person, someone might think I'm better than the people around me. I don't need a savior. I can respect who Jesus is in a sort sort of stoic way, acknowledge his existence historically, but I'm basically good. I don't need someone to save me, especially not the way the Bible describes. They don't realize that like all people, they're sinners who cannot come to God on their own terms. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He provides mediation because we need it. We can't come to God on our merits. Those who reject Christ will not be able to stand before God and successfully plead their own case on their merits. Their merits will not garner it. Even if you are better than the person sitting next to you, still a sinner in need of salvation. So I think lots of people reject Christ because they don't see themselves as needing salvation. Some others will reject Christ because they fear a loss of status in the world if they're known as Christians. Certainly, the first century believers had quite a price to pay. Many people the world over have a price to pay to identify with Christ. So people fear social rejection if they believe on Christ. That's especially more and more true in our own culture. So it becomes less popular to hold that which Christ held. The fear of social rejection or persecution, it deters some people from receiving Christ as Savior. Some will not confess Christ because they're more concerned with their status among their peers than heeding God's revelation. Pharisees were kind of like this. They were religious on the outside, but they loved their position among men. It says in the Scriptures in describing them that they loved their approval of men more than their approval, the approval of God. I think that's the reason why many people reject Christ. For some people, and it's related to this, it's a little different though, they just love the stuff of the world so much that they're bogged down by it. They're not going to give it up. They love whatever those pleasures are, whatever those things are that they have. It's just more appealing to them on the temporary level, and they can't see to the eternal. The rich young ruler was kind of like this. He was interested in what Jesus was teaching, but he was not interested in getting rid of his stuff for it. His stuff became more important. Some people are just obscured or they're just bogged down with stuff. Scott Redd said that some people are inexplicably drawn to Jesus while others are just as inexplicably repelled by him. The ultimate reason, though, why people reject Christ is something to challenge ourselves with. When Jesus was preaching, he got to a point in his ministry where more people were peeling away than following him. Early on, they all started following him because of what he was teaching and what he was doing. But then as he taught more and more... uh, in-depth about sin and the need for him and giving his body as a sacrifice, uh, the wider group of disciples didn't like what they were hearing. It was starting to fall, in, uh, fall upon to them in a way that it was, uh, it caused them to reject him. And so when he's speaking of this, he's explaining why they reject. In John 6, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So the Lord has to give us spiritual life to lay hold of Christ, to receive Christ. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about this very feature. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So as Jesus is proclaimed and explained and expounded, exhorted concerning, as the Holy Spirit wills, the Holy Spirit will open one's mind or heart to receive Christ. So this is why we preach the message. We make this offer of the gospel on a a regular basis because those who don't know him need to hear this and the Spirit does the work. Those who do know him are refreshed by it. We're assured by it. Our room is more in order. We prepare our room differently. We reorder our room. Maybe it's gotten a little messy, not focused on the King coming. Finally, the culmination of all of this, what do we do? Well, as I've been saying, and I encourage you concerning, receive the king. Prepare room for him. In your life now, if you're a believer in the needs of reordering, if you're not a believer, receive him as the first, the first time. Think of receive in this sense the way it's at least initially written in John 1. All who did receive him, there are many who reject, but all, the who did rec- all those who did receive him, verse 12, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Spirit does this work of making us or having us to believe in making us his sons and daughters. There are a couple categories. The world, those who've never heard before, I appeal to you. If you've not heard before, it hasn't made sense to you before, I pray that it does, that the Holy Spirit would enliven you to lay hold of Jesus and trust in him, rest in him and his finished work. Those who are raised in the church. Maybe you're raised as a kid in the church. You've always been respectful. You appreciate the message. You know it has truth to it. Um, you appreciate, you respect your parents and what they think. But you yourself have not received the king. You have not trusted in him personally for your salvation. And then furthermore, the next step that comes from that, not, it's, not, it's, it's the next step after salvation. You could be saved and stuck in a rut, no doubt. But this has to do with this whole feature of preparing your room. How does your room look now in light of you who say you have received the king? And that's a challenge to people who have been sitting in the church a long time, especially young people who grew up in the church. I've always heard it. Don't deny it, but my life doesn't look like it's ordered by it. It's this one component. This is a challenge to all of us to reconsider. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Receive and believe, synonymous here, to acknowledge, to rest upon, to depend upon. And then the further sense and meaning, but, which I think Isaac Watts is challenging us with his first verse, let every heart prepare room. Make a space, make a priority for the one who is Jesus our King. One author said it really well, receiving Jesus Christ into our lives is more than adding him to an already cl- cluttered priority list. He does not offer the option of being only part of our lives. When we receive him, we pledge to him our allegiance and look to him as the undisputed Lord of our lives. I began with an illustration, and so I close with a similar illustration. The illustration was preparing our houses for guests, for special guests, even a kingly guest who might come. Now, though, when you read the passage in John, there's something more about who we're inviting that I hope assures you even further. Notice what it says, all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave right to become and here's the key, children of God. So you're not only receiving the king, by receiving the king, you also receive adoption as sons and daughters. I had a friend who had a very high ranking uh, military father, who was kind of scary to all of us because of his ranking. And we when we hung out with our friend and saw him with his father. We we were amazed with how loving a relationship they had, the way they joked together, the way they got along. And we'd say to men, "Your dad's kind of intimidates so us. He's my father." So when we receive the King, God is our Father. Now who we have in our house um, wants good things for us. It's not like we're scared what he'll see in our house. It's that it will help us order our house, that we prepare room for him so that he can come in and have his lordship. And his lordship is defined through his fathership to us. He is our father. He cares for you as a son or a daughter. I get whenever you call someone a parental term, if you've had a bad parental experience, and many people have, that can color it for us. We have to back away a bit and see God the father for who he is, who's given his own son so we might be saved. And the willingness of the triune God to do this for us and then to receive him, we then have adoption as sons and daughters. This picture of children of the king is rich and plentiful. In our confession, it describes all that comes to us when we're adopted. We enjoy the liberties and the privileges of the children of God. We have his name put upon us. We receive the spirit of adoption. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness. We can go to him any anytime and talk to him about anything. We're enabled to cry, Abba, Father. We're pitied, protected, provided for, chastened by him as a father. He cares for us, disciplines us when we need it. Yet we're never cast off, sealed to the day of redemption, and we inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. When you receive him, when he comes into your room, when he comes into your place, your father loves you and he orders it accordingly. When you receive the king, you are receiving God as your father. And this really gives insight to what Paul wrote in his first epistle. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, O Lord, for your coming 2,000 years ago, and we long for your return. Holy Spirit, please give us aid in applying the truth of your word, that we would order our houses, our spiritual houses, in a way that takes into account our king and our father, that we might receive Jesus as our king fully, that we might receive him as our savior and our Lord and that we might bask in our status as sons and daughters of the King whom we have received. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.